This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning, as we turn to God's Word, our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of John. So we're looking at John chapter 15 and beginning in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. We'll turn to the Old Testament to our our sermon text this morning, which comes from the book of Malachi. So we're beginning a new study this morning, uh, a new book in Malachi. And so we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins... The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. May God bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you as we uh, are now in our third Minor Prophet. This will be the last one of the summer. Um, as Jerry said this morning, I think it's Italian for Malachi or something like that, right? No, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not. Um, and so as we, as we come to this book, we totally recognize that this is the last of the Old Testament prophets. It's the last written message before you get to the Gospels. Uh, In fact, if you look just quickly in chapter 3, you look at verse 1, it says, Behold, I send a messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, the coming, says the Lord of hosts. There's a good picture there of the anticipation of the New Testament in Jesus Christ, and we see that rooted here in Malachi uh, the very last book of the Old Testament. Before we start unpacking this, I just want to take a moment and look to the Lord in prayer. Shall we do that? Heavenly Father, we come before you and 
Lord, we are thankful that uh, you have not been silent. You have spoken through your, through your people. We're thankful for this last book of the Old Testament. We're thankful, Lord, as we've walked through this summer, the, the various minor prophets and the messages that they have carried for the people whom you love. And we pray, Lord, this morning that we would have ears to hear you, that our hearts would be soft towards you. Lord, we know the common thread in all of these minor prophets is how easy your people stray and how often they need to be corrected and turned back. And Lord, before we pass judgment upon those Old Testament saints, we look in the mirror and we say, that's me. And Lord, we're thankful that we can come and we can gather weekly under your word that we can gather and, and know that you are present with us in a mighty, powerful way. And Lord, we pray that you would use this time in our lives, that you would use this time as we have been called under your word. Lord, change our hearts. May we be so in love with you that all the glitter and glamour of the world would seem as nothing. May you be our chief joy and our chief desire. May we be hungry for you, to know you, to walk with you. God, I pray that you would do a mighty work in each one of us. And that you would use this book as we embark on yet a, another series. Um, Lord, in the, in the Minor Prophets, I pray that you would use this book for our good and your glory. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, your preacher. I pray, Lord, that I would not say anything more nor less than you've given me to say but God, that I would be faithful to your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. How many of you heard that before? That's a famous poem. I didn't know if you know that. It's actually called Sonnet Number 43, to be exact. That's a really loving name, Sonnet 43. Uh, the speaker is proclaiming in that sonnet their undying love. The theme of the psalm goes something like this. The, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to death and breath and height my soul can reach. I love thee freely. I love thee purely. I love thee. The point of this poem is that true love is an all-consuming passion. Let me say that again. True love is an all-consuming passion. Let me give you a little background of that Sonnet 43. This poem was actually based upon the courtship of a woman by the name of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And she was writing this sonnet, this poem, to her future husband, Robert Browning. Elizabeth's early poems brought her great success and actually attracted the admiration and attention of the writer Robert Browning. Their correspondence and courtship and eventual marriage were all carried out in secret for fear of her father's disapproval. Finally, the wedding that uh, took place, and she was indeed disinherited by her father. In 1846, the couple moved to Italy where they would live for the rest of their lives. You can feel the passion of her words when she says, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. 
You understand a little better when you know the background that she's writing these words in secret because she has to keep them from her father for fear that she could be thrown out of the house or even be disinherited. And she was willing to allow this love to be pursued. You can feel the passion. But let me ask an upside-down question. What happens in our relationships when we don't feel the passion? I used all that to set up that question. (laughs) What happens when you don't feel the passion? It's natural in our society to say, well, if I don't feel passion, then I don't have love. We associate passion and love as a one-for-one, that that where there's love, there's got to be passion, and where there's passion, oh, that must be love. But are we right to question love just because we don't feel passion? I want you to think about that in light of our text, our five verses this morning. See, you can see in our text that oftentimes we can seek wrong assurances, Even in our prayer of confession, we talked about the assurance of God's love. And oftentimes we allow our feelings to be what dictates that I'm loved. Because I feel loved. I feel good. I feel charged. I'm excited about God. I want to read the Bible. Every year we take a group of kids off to camp and they come back and they're just so excited. And unfortunately in my mind it's like, well, how long, oh Lord, will this last, right? We want it to last. But understand Knowing the love of God isn't just about experiencing a feeling. See, if we rely on our feelings, our emotions, that's a problem. Because we should be trusting in God's covenantal promise, His vow to us. And that's the situation in Malachi. See, the prophet Malachi serves after the completion of the temple. We've been reading about them going into exile, then we read about them coming back from exile and about building the temple. And now some some commentators believe about a hundred years has transpired in all of this time. From the time of exile to the rebuilding to when Malachi shows up. And there's new issues that have arisen amongst the people of God. See, the priests and the people are beginning to dishonor God and giving God less than their best. And the reason they're doing this is they say, we don't feel loved. We don't feel loved by you, God. And so it's okay to marry pagans. It's okay to offer blemished sacrifices. It's okay to neglect our tithes and offerings because we don't feel loved by you. And this should be reciprocal. I want to draw your attention to one word at the very beginning of this prophetic book. Look at verse 1. Oracle. Oracle. What does the word oracle mean? Well, in our mind, it's speech. It's, It's God giving a speech or a prophecy through his prophet. I want you to understand that the word oracle actually has the idea of burden. That what we have in this text is that ultimately this prophet is be given a burden for the people, that God has a burden for his people. A burden because of their sin, a, a burden because of their lack of luster for him. And here I want you to see in verse 2 how God opens this oracle. Look at the first words of, of verse 2. He says, I've loved you. 
I just got done telling you the people haven't been living for God. They've been giving un, un, unclean animals to God, blemished animals, lame animals, sick animals. This is what they're sacrificing to God, just so they're meeting the requirement, but there's no love or heart behind it. It's like going to the store and finding the cheapest set of flowers for your spouse. Where's the cheap ones? Where are the ones that are like three days old? Do you get anything older than that? That's what I want to give to my wife, right? That's the picture of what takes place. You can see the lack of love. And not only that, they're holding back their tithes and their offerings. And they're saying, God, you're not worthy of our money or our resources. In fact, we're not even going to listen to you about who we should marry or how we should live. We know better than you. You can only imagine God there in the throne room being angry at the sin of the people he saved. And what would we expect in this oracle as the first words? Well, I can only tell you I would expect him to grab him by the scruff of the neck and throw him against the wall and say, what do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? But isn't it amazing that rather than seeing that response, the response we see from God is these words, I've loved you. Wow. Just sit in that for a moment. Sit in that and allow your own life and how you've given God less, how you have been holding back from God, and just receive those words this morning. God's words, I have loved you. Now, if you're anything like me, you have a critical spirit at times, and you begin to find the negative, and you can begin to look at this and say, oh, there it is in past tense. He used to love them, right? It, it, it's the idea of, of the perfect. It's in the past tense, but that's not exactly right. Yes, this is in the past tense, but it's also to be re- rendered in the present tense as well. Right now, I'm loving you, and it even applies to the future. I will continue to be loving you. In the face of their sin, in the face of their disobedience, in the face of their rejection of giving God his glory, he looks at his covenant people and he says, I love you. This is absolutely amazing. Who's worthy of that? I know when I mess up at home, I come with my head down and my shoulders shrunk in and I'm I'm bumbling for words because I recognize I'm not worthy of the love of my wife. How much more am I worthy of the love of God? I'm not. And neither are you. And yet his message to his sinful people is I love you. I love you. Friends, this is good news. This is the good news of God's unaltered love. God's continual and unconditional love for his people. Some of us in this room need to be reminded of that this morning. We have a God who loves us. Matt said it in his prayer in Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. I like the way the NIV puts it here. It says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you hear that this morning? Because of the Lord's great love, not because of how many things you've done right, not because of who you are, 
but because of his great love, we're not consumed. This is the message that God has for his people. And how would you expect them to respond? Well, the Lord answers that at the end of verse 2. They respond with, how have you loved us? Bunch of teenagers. (laughs) Show me. Tell me. How have you loved us? How could they say that? Just looking over the history of their lives, shouldn't they have enough information to say, surely God's loved them. But before we judge them this morning, reflect on your own life. How quick are you to say to God, how have you loved me lately? (laughs) How have you appreciated me, Lord? How have you shown your kindness towards me? Don't we fall into that same trap? Sure we do. See, the people are questioning God's love. Here's why. Simply said, because things didn't progress as they thought. Things didn't progress as they thought. And because things didn't progress as they thought, they began to deny God's covenantal love. See, when they returned to the promised land, when they returned to the promised land, they returned with high hopes. And sure enough, they fell away and they lost sight, but then they were corrected. And and guess what? They finished the temple. The temple's finished. Surely now we'll see the glory that David saw. Surely now we'll see the, the glory that Solomon saw. Surely now the Messiah will return. Surely now our enemies will be defeated. But it didn't work out that way. No, after they finished the temple, after all the celebration things went on like normal. They still had to pay taxes to their governor. Look at verse 8. They had to pay taxes to their governor, their foreign governor, their Persian ruler. And God acknowledges that. Things hadn't changed. They, They were still being ruled by a foreign power. And they're going, what? This isn't the way it's supposed to play out. We've been faithful. We built a temple. Look at it. It's there. God, we've been faithful. What? It wasn't just the Persian ruler, though, they were also experiencing plagues and difficulties. You find that in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Hardship. Things weren't growing. They were starving in some respects. God, how have you loved us? If you've loved us, wouldn't you take care of us? Wouldn't you be providing for us? This wouldn't have happened. Friends, how many times have you said that to God yourself? Okay, maybe you haven't verbalized it, but you've thought it. God, if you really would have been present, this wouldn't have happened. God, if you really cared for me, you wouldn't allow this. How often do we respond when things don't go as we expect? How often do we question God's love? See, the problem is we treat our relationship with God as a business transaction. That's the way we're used to operating in American culture, business transactions. I'll do this if you do this. And unfortunately, people even go into marriages that way. I'll do this if you do this. But it's especially bad when we go into our relationship with the creator of the universe that way. Because there is nothing we can trade. We have no goods. We have nothing of value He loves us simply because he chooses to. And that's humbling. That's humbling for us. 
I want you to hear the words Moses speaking for God in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. Hear these words that Moses is speaking on behalf of God. He writes, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For in fact, you were the fewest of all the people. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What was the reason in there? Was it because they were great in multitude? No. Was it because they were, they were smarter than the rest of the people? No. Was it because they're more pretty to look at? No. The reason God loves them is because God chose to, it says. How humbling that is for us. How humbling to realize that we are loved simply because God wants to love us. And he is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. He keeps his word. So I ask you a question this morning. When your life doesn't go as expected, this week, maybe even today, how will you fight to trust God's love? How will you fight to trust God's love? See, that's what we should be doing because he told us he loves us. So in spite of what we experience or feel, we need to trust his word. And we need to fight to trust his word. Because we have an enemy prowling like a lion seeking whom he may devour that casts all kinds of doubts. If you go back to the garden scene, when Adam and Eve were tempted in that garden, it was a temptation to disbelieve God's word. Every sin, every temptation begins with a temptation to disbelieve God's promise. And for each of us, that begins with believing or disbelieving, I should say, his love. That's the challenge. That's, that's the battle. In our text, God actually begins to work this out. In verses 3 through 5, he actually offers a demonstration or a reassurance of his love to them. And he uses a picture way back of the patriarchs. He goes back past the time of exile, even past the time of Moses. He goes back all the way to the early fathers, specifically one named Jacob. I want you to look at verse 2 at the very end and on to verse 3. Notice these words. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Have I not loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated? I have laid waste to his hill country. I want you to start it there at the end of verse 2 where he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Notice he mentions Esau because he has to because that is Jacob's older brother. And it would have made sense that if God was going to choose any of them, that God would have chosen the older one. Because the older one was supposed to get the special blessing of promise. He was supposed to be the choice child. But going all the way back to the patriarchs, God, it says, loved Jacob. 
the younger one. And what's absolutely amazing about that is Jacob actually means liar. (laughs) Jacob was a liar. Jacob was a cheat. Jacob had experienced a lot of difficult in his life because of his sin. He wrestled with God, and actually his hip ended up out of joint later in life. He had a bad experience before that with his uncle Laban, who cheated him because he was cheating him. (laughs) And he even experienced the hatred of his brother Esau because he stole his birthright from him. Jacob was a liar, and yet God loved him. David was a murderer, an adulterer, and God loved him. Abraham was a man of fear and even lied to protect his own skin, hiding behind his wife, and God loved him. Do you see a theme here? God doesn't choose them because they're more shiny or they're better or they're brighter. God chooses them because that is what God has chosen to do. And by choosing Jacob, God is, in essence, very clear saying, I have not chosen Esau. And he's having the people who are now living after the the exile, who've rebuilt the temple, who are part of Jacob's line saying, compare yourself for a moment. Are you a child of Jacob, the chosen one, or of Esau, the Edomites? Which are you? Of course, they know because they're very proud people. It's part of their sin problem. We're, We're of Jacob. We're Israel. Well, let's look at what God has done. God has hated Esau. According to our text at the beginning of verse 3, I've laid waste his hill country. I've punished him. I've judged him. Because see, not only was Jacob a sinner, but Esau himself was a sinner. Esau hated everything about Jacob, and therefore he hated everything about God. This is important. Because what I'm telling you this morning is that neither of them deserved anything good from God. It's not like Esau was the shiny one doing all the right things and Jacob wasn't and God still chose Jacob. Neither of them did anything good. In fact, Paul even goes back further than that when he discusses God's choice. Listen to Romans 9 verses 11 and 12. He says, Though they were not yet born and had done neither evil or good, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She, his mother, was told the older would serve the younger. God's covenant love is selective. And that's what we need to understand. We've never earned it. We've never been in position for it. We've been blessed by it. And so God says in this demonstration, so Israel, compare yourself to the Edomites. Go ahead. See how I've dealt with them. Well, all the while, Jacob has had his own hard life. Like I said, he he had to leave because Esau wanted to kill him. He had to serve under Laban who cheated him. He had to wrestle against God. Yet that was nothing compared to what the Edomites experience. 
because they will experience the judgment of God. Yes, Jacob may have experienced the discipline of God, the correcting of God, the chastisement of God, but the Edomites, the judgment of God. Do you really want to compare yourself to them, he says? Do you really want to know what it's like to be unloved by God? See, we need to understand we're all sinners. We need to understand that none of us stands before God on our own terms. Yes, Jacob sinned. Yes, Esau sinned. But as a son of God, which Jacob was and his lineage was, when they disobeyed, God disciplined. As a father, a loving father, a caring father, a father who truly punishes sin because he loves them and won't let them get away with it. But when Esau sins and the Edomites, his lineage sin, they're storing up for themselves the very wrath of God. And so God is saying in this, do you really want to compare yourself to the Edomites? Do you really want to question my love even though things aren't going like you expect? Maybe it's my fatherly love that's trying to correct you. Maybe I'm trying to get your attention. Maybe I'm working for your sanctification. Not maybe, I am. See, that's the message that God has for his people. And he actually goes to great lengths to talk about the doom of the Edomites compared to the blessing of those who are Israel's. Look at Malachi 1.4. It says, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild our ruins. But the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'll tear down. That's the kind of relationship they have with me. But not you. Because Israel, when you sin, yes, I punish. And I may punish for a long time, 70 years in exile. But haven't I restored? And yes, even now, as you have been restored to your land and the temple's been built, and things quite are as you expect because there's still an enemy in the land who rules over you. Trust me. Trust me. Have I not been faithful in the past? That's the message that God has for his people. See, clearly in this text, Jacob's people have been punished but not destroyed. But the Edomites, they will experience the wrath of God. Church, there is so much here for us this morning. We need to stop comparing ourselves to the world. We need to stop judging by the TV standards of what love is. We need to go back to the covenant promises of God that a good and godly father will punish his people because he loves us. He wants us to be made in his image, holy and set apart, to carry on the family name. He does this out of his great love. See, the book of Malachi is really a picture of a New Testament book the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, and then in verse 11, we read this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that is addressed to you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Do you hear that? And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hear this to those who've been trained by it. The difficulty, the hardship, the struggle is the training that God has us undergo. So church, understand this. Just because life is hard doesn't mean that God has stopped loving you. In fact, I would say it means that God does love you. He's carrying you through. He's working on you as a good father who loves you. After all, isn't this exactly what the Apostle Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 10, when he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested. Isn't that what we're after? To show how we resemble the work of Christ in us? See, God's people, according to Malachi, would be able to look and see the difference. Look at verse 5. You shall, you, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Great is the Lord. The problem was they were all too often coming up with their own understanding of what it meant for God to love them all the while ignoring his covenant faithfulness. In love, God would not allow his people to get away with sin. In love, he would correct them. And the same is true for us. We have a perfectly heavenly father who loves us so well, he allows us to struggle. And see, here's the unique thing. Jacob understood this. Jacob's own words in Genesis chapter 32, verses 9 and 10, he says, And God said, and Jacob said, excuse me, O God, my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and your kindred, that I may do good to you. Listen to what Jacob says. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of your steadfast love. I'm not worthy. And all the fullness that you have shown to your servant. For only my staff, I crossed the Jordan. And now I come back full with two camps. That's the blessing of the Lord in one's life. That's an older Jacob coming back and recognizing all the difficulty, all the struggle. Man, God was doing something wonderful. Church, hear me this morning. The struggles that you're facing, you may feel like all you have left is the rod to hold you up. But Jacob came back and his camps were full. The blessing of the Lord is rich for those who trust in him. So I ask you this morning, how have you seen God's covenantal love in your life? How have you experienced God's faithful love to you? Can I ask you this as well? How has it looked different than you expected? 
How does God's love for you look different than you expected? Well, let me tell you, there is no better picture of God's covenantal love found in Scripture than in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? See, the bottom line is that each one of us are sinners, just like Jacob, just like Esau. None of us deserve God's love. Yet in God's faithfulness to his covenant, in God's loving covenant, he sent forth his son to do what? To do what we could not do, to save us from our sin. Listen to Paul write in Romans 5, verses 8 through 10. He says, but God shows his love for us in while we were still sinners. I like what some writers say there. While we were in the very act, the very moment of sin, he sent his love for us in Jesus Christ. See, Christ died for us, he goes on to say. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? He was reconciling us while we were his enemies, just like Jacob. How much more will we be blessed in the trials and the tribulations as his son? That's what Paul's saying. See, Jesus is our perfect redemption. And the picture of that perfect redemption, friends, is the cross. Point to the cross in your struggle. Look to the cross when you're fighting to believe the love of God because there we see the love of God outpoured through the blood of Jesus for us. The truth is, At times it may be difficult. At times it may really be hard to understand and believe that God loves us. But the truth is, he does. And Jesus, Jesus Christ, his own son, is the testimony of his love. Jesus' willingness to come and and lay his life down because of his love for the Father and his love for the church. We are so loved beyond measure. We cannot comprehend it. So church, when you are tempted to doubt God's love, look to the cross. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenantal promise. In Malachi 3.1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. They were discouraged because they were waiting for the Messiah and they thought God didn't love them. In just 400 short years, a man by the name of John the Baptist would come and he would walk as the messenger of God and one day he pointed to Jesus Christ, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Church, look to the Lamb. It's in the Lamb that we see the love of God. When you doubt, when you fear, when you worry that you are not loved by God, church, look to Christ. I like what one commentator said. He said, this book of Malachi can actually act as a catechism for you. A catechism, a teaching instrument, 
a teaching instrument for your times of doubts and disappointment. The book of Malachi can actually serve to remind you of God's love during the difficult times. It can act as a reminder to the visible church that even when we feel distant from God, God's love is not distant from us. Even in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our disobedience, when the devil would have us believe that we are most unlovable, God says, I have loved you. I am loving you. And I will love you forever. Church, that's good news. That's the gospel. And that's right there in the Old Testament. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we celebrate the truth of the love you have for us. We're reminded of the hymn that we sang earlier, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he could give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Lord, we acknowledge that we are a room full of wretches. We are in of ourselves nothing, but in you, in Christ, our Redeemer, we have everything. We praise you for your covenantal love. We praise you for the grace that you provide. Lord, may we not doubt, may we not fret, May we not worry, but may we rest in your love. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said.